Today we are reading out of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 through 28. And if you have a Bible from the back, that can be found on page 988. Once again, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 through 28. And please remember, this is God's word. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Thanks. You can be seated. So today we're going to finish this uh, book of First Thessalonians we've been studying. This is our eighth week uh, looking at it, and uh, really made a great fit uh, for this Advent season as we looked at uh, how, do, how do we live in light of Jesus coming. That was really the big question that we asked. Uh, Matthew looked last week in particular at, uh, at the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5 and the coming of the Lord. He did a good job with that, didn't he? And uh, yeah, confirm that. And uh, he, he, man, he worked hard, and I know that it came out of a source of passion for him. The idea that Jesus is coming back. And we celebrate in, in Advent that Jesus came once. We're celebrating that, he, that he's coming back. And the idea of, of this series has been to say, how should we live in light of that fact? So if you knew that Jesus Christ was going to return on December 25th, how would that change things? How would that change your attitude? How would that change your, your sense of devotion to him? How would that change the, the, the way that you would try to live? How would that change the relationships you would invest in? How would you live in light of his coming? We said at the very beginning that the coming of the Lord is mentioned in every chapter of this book of 1 Thessalonians. It's a major theme. And we're trying to think here, how do we live in light of that? Now we get to this last passage. It begins in verse 12 here. And uh, this is, at first glance, it really feels kind of like the junk drawer of, like, Paul had a bunch of other stuff he wanted to say, and uh, he ran out of time. He had to go Christmas shopping or something, and, like, he just sort of threw a bunch of stuff down, and, and now we got it. And, and it feels like that a little bit when you first read it, and this sermon will feel like that a little bit, <laughs> um, just to be honest with you. Um, there are, if I counted correctly, there are 19 commands in this, uh, in this particular section of Scripture. So some people will say to you, you know the Bible, I can't say the Bible, it's just filled with a bunch of do's and don'ts. And usually you go, no, 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 the Bible's not about do's and don'ts, it's about relationship, and, it's, and it is about relationship, and it's mostly about what Jesus, not about what you should do, what Jesus did. But uh, there's a lot of do's here. And so even a few don'ts. 
Uh, most of this book has, has not been that. The first command, like a, 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 an imperative, you got to do this, actually came in 4.18, which Matthew looked at last week, that we should encourage one another with the fact that Jesus is returning. That's the first command. It's like he, you know, he had to get his quota in, so he just blasts a bunch of commands here at the end is a bit how it feels. Um, but as you look at it, you can kind of get the sense that these fit, uh, hopefully, into some sort of... Uh, there's some, there's some reason behind what appears to be madness at first. Um, I'm helped in this by our uh, preaching collective and some of the other preachers, and just, just so you know this, um, as we're one church in four congregations, um, we gather every Wednesday with all the preachers, uh, whoever's going to preach 10 days in advance, so it's kind of two weeks in advance, and we gather with them and any of the other pastors that want to come and, and some of the developing leaders and preachers, and we gather for that and we talk through how, you know, what are some things that God seems to be saying in this passage, um, what's a big idea, how does the gospel connect, all these things. And we walk out of there, not with all the same sermon. If you go listen to all the sermons, you'll see they're very different based on uh, who's preaching and who they're preaching to. But we walk out with some good ideas, and I actually missed the preaching collective uh, for this one. So you're in trouble. I don't, I, this is actually, frankly, the first time I've read it. No, just kidding. You may go, it felt like that. Uh, but but I, I was talking, so I missed the collective, so I was calling uh, my buddy Tyler Johnson, who has been the interim pastor up at Arcadia. Um, actually, uh, that congregation just uh, made an offer and just hired a new uh, lead campus pastor, a guy named Frank Switzer. Uh, many of you don't know or care about that, but they, they did that, and it's a good thing for that congregation. Um, but Tyler's preaching today. I think he's preaching at Gilbert, and uh, we were looking at this going like, what a- how are you going to tackle this? How are you going to approach this? Uh, this just seems like a, a tricky thing to understand. And uh, we settled on kind of a, an idea that I think, I think helps make sense of this, is uh, the idea of what this passage is fundamentally about is a bunch of commands exhorting us to have 360-degree love. 360-degree Love. If you're a leader or you're in business, maybe you've read, I know there's a book called The 360 Degree Leader that kind of talks about how do you lead um, those who are underneath you, those who are peers of yours, and those who are your superiors, kind of in a work, workforce type environment. What this passage is fundamentally about is how do you have 360 degree love? How do you love not just the people that are like you, but the people who in a sense are kind of beneath you, And how do you also love and serve those that God has put over you? That's really what this is about. It's about cultivating this attitude of love. And love really is an attitude. I think oftentimes we we get messed up because we think of love just as a feeling. And feelings feel like, well, how can God command me to have feelings? Well, we'll actually see in this passage, he's going to command you to feel something. Like if you look at 5.16, he's going to say, rejoice always. Well, rejoice. I don't feel like it. Okay, well, so what? God's commanding it. And God gives us the ability to do all kinds of things that uh, we couldn't do apart from him. But, but if we look at love, not as a feeling, we're kind of a victim to our circumstances, but as an attitude that we embrace, I think that changes some things. So here's a definition of attitude. Uh, attitude means a settled way of thinking or feeling about someone or something, typically one that is reflected in a person's behavior. A settled way of thinking or feeling. 
So th- this is something that is, is habitual. It's a pattern. It's a decision. It's a choice. This is not sort of, I, I'm just reacting this way or this thing happened and I'm thinking this. It's here is the attitude I've decided to have. It's a settled way of thinking, a settled way of feeling, and it's reflected in a person's behavior, isn't it? Often it's reflected through body language. Right? You can look at people and you can look at, at I mean, they say most, most communication is nonverbal, right? Most of it is, is body language. And body language, is com- it communicates something. I have the, um, I guess, privilege of being up here most weeks and preaching. And uh, when you first start as a preacher, it just goes so fast. It's like you can't, you're just trying to do everything you can to just make some sense. And you can't, like, really look at people very much. You're just trying to, like, get through it. Uh, but the longer you preach, the more you can kind of like look at people and see them and, and know them. And so people will say, hey, I haven't seen so-and-so in a while. And I'll usually be able to go, oh, yeah, well, you know, I know, I know Brett's here because he's always right over there in that fourth row on, the, on my left, right? He's always there, right? And, and all of you sort of have your, you know, not assigned assigned seats. <laughs> you know, my family usually sits here. The Marses are always up front, you know. You guys, you know, always in the back. The Reeves always in the back by the sound booth. And uh, it just, I, you just get a sense of that. I would love for you guys to just switch it up on me, and I'd be like, no one came. I didn't know who was there. <laughs> but, but one of the things I can see as I, as I look and as I watch is I can see your body language. And some of you, every, every week, you're, you're eager, and there's a Bible open, and you kind of are leaning forward, and you're, you're, I can just tell that you are hungry for, for God's word. Other times people are here, and it's like, I didn't make you come. Like, sorry, you can leave at any time. I mean, it just, you know, or, or I mean, you can, just, you can just tell that. And to me, what that reflects is that there's an attitude there. There's an attitude of, I've decided that this is important. I've decided I want to learn something. I've decided I want to hear from God. Now, attitudes are these settled ways of thinking or feeling about things. And they impact our behavior. They're reflected in our behavior. I think few things are more important than attitude. What are the settled ways of thinking and feeling that you're going to have? And uh, what we're called to in this passage is to have an attitude of love. Here's what Chuck Swindoll says about the importance of attitude. He says, uh, the longer I live, the more I realize the impact of attitude on life. Attitude to me is more important than facts. It's more important than the past, than education, than money than circumstances, than failures, than success, than what other people think or say or do. It's more important than appearance, gift, or skill. It will make or break a company, a church, a home. What's the attitude in your home? What's the attitude in the home you grew up in? I mean, there's a lot you can unpack and learn from that. He continues, the remarkable thing is we have a choice every day regarding our attitude. Regarding the attitude we will embrace for that day. We cannot change our past. We cannot change the fact that people will act in a certain way. We cannot change the inevitable. The only thing we can do is play on the string we have. And that is our attitude. I'm convinced that life is 10% what happens to me and 90% how I react to it. And so it is with you. We're in charge of our attitudes. Attitude's important. And also, attitude is incredibly contagious. Isn't it? I mean, you're around uh, people who are complaining and who are 
bitter and who are angry and who are cynical. And, and you spend time around them and, and you can't help but have that rub off on you, right? And all of a sudden you're just grouchy and you don't even really know why you're grouchy. You just are and it's because it's contagious. And it's contagious the other way. Right, when people are upbeat and encouraging and, and doesn't mean everything, I mean, people that are like too upbeat, like Ned Flanders upbeat, right? Like, how do they do to Lee, neighbor? I mean, I, that's a little annoying, right? We try not to catch that kind of attitude too much. But, but when people have a good attitude, when people have decided that they're going to have a way of thinking or feeling, an attitude of love, that's contagious. Even our culture gets that. You know that one uh, commercial where I, I don't know even who it's for. Not a very effective commercial. Um, but somebody sees, you know, somebody sees a, someone rush out to help this baby that's running into the street. And someone else notices. And then they go do a good thing. And then they go do a good thing. And I mean, we just know that this attitude is contagious. And nothing, the scripture tells us, is more important than the attitude of love. Attitude's important, attitude's contagious, but nothing's more important than this attitude of love, especially for those who are followers of Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 13, the Apostle Paul says that there's faith and hope and love. I actually mentioned that in 1 Thessalonians as well, faith, hope, and love. He says, but the greatest of these is love. He says, if you have faith that could move mountains, but you don't have love, worthless. If you're generous, if you're sacrificial, if you um, would even sacrifice to the point of giving up your body to be burned, but you don't have love, he says it's, you're just a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. The attitude of love is incredibly important. And that's really the, the theme we're getting here in these verses. We'll get to them here in just a minute. We'll see this 360 degree love. Where does it come from though? Let's start there. Where do we get a love like that? We're going to be commanded to it over and over and over and over. Where do we get it? Well, fortunately, this passage tells us that. Look at chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. You know, this was a passage you looked at last week, and um, it's, it's, I think, just the more I've been chewing on these two verses, in verses 9 and 10, the more I just have come to really love these verses. Here's what Paul wrote. He said, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that good news? You're not destined for wrath. Like the sin that you've committed, the way that you have disregarded God, the way that you have lived for yourself, the way that you have been selfish, the way that you have committed acts that are sinful and wicked, as well as the way that you have avoided doing the things that you know were right. All of that means that you are deserving of wrath what the Bible says. But God hasn't destined you to receive that, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. You go, well, I deserve wrath, but I don't get it. Why? Because Jesus Christ on the cross got the wrath that you deserve. When Jesus Christ was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane before he went to the cross, and he said, Father, if it's at all possible, let this cup pass from me. What the cup he's talking about is the cup of God's furious wrath against sin. The Father didn't answer that prayer. Jesus drank the wrath of God every last drop. 
because of his love for us. And so therefore, we've obtained salvation. We've obtained rescue through faith in Jesus Christ. And here's what he says, verse 10. Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so endured the wrath, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Now last week, Matthew unpacked all that it means to be awake or asleep. Uh, Paul here is not talking about you know, getting a great mattress and having a REM cycle. Um, he's talking about dead or alive. Uh, Paul, you know, he uses asleep to, to talk about Christians who have died and their bodies in the ground. It's like they're asleep, but they're going to be raised. And that's all that he talked about in the passage before this. And so what he's saying is Christ died so that whether you're alive or, or, or not, no matter what, you would live with him. Philippians says, for to live is Christ and to die is gain. So that's, that's the beauty of the gospel. And what will fuel our attitude of love is that. So if you read the rest of this passage, if you read starting in verse 12 and go to the end and you read all 19 commands and you forget that it comes from chapter nine, verses 9 and 10, you will be a legalist. You will assume that God loves you based on your ability to obey all these commands of love. And you will forget that the only reason that you can even obey these things is because God's wrath isn't against you anymore. And he's enabled you now to live for him. So these commands flow out of that starting point. All right, 360 degree love. Let's take a look at it. It starts in verse 13. We see first that we should display an attitude of love towards those in authority over us. It says verse 12. We ask you, brothers, to respect uh, those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Uh, this is talking about, if you want to think of that picture, of, of how do we respect and esteem and love those who are over us. That's what he talks about. Those who labor among you are over you and admonish you. That's uh, three ways to describe the same group of people. And uh, what he's talking about here are, are those, in, in the context here, he's talking about in the church, those who are leaders, those who are overseers. Uh, the biblical word would be elders or pastors. And the command here is to respect them. Uh, the word means to acknowledge them, to, uh, to, to respect. I mean, that's what it is, to respect them. You see it very clearly in verse 13, to esteem them very highly in love. Again, Demonstrate an attitude of love towards these leaders. This is inherently, I just tell you, this is strange, okay? As a, as a leader, like to give a message calling you to respect and esteem me feels like weird, right? I mean, can you just put yourself in my shoes for a second and go, ah, that, that's just weird. But it's, it's in the scripture. We're going to teach it. Here we go. Um, and so I want you to think about this, not just for me, because what this is talking about, it, notice he says those, right? He doesn't say, we ask you brothers to respect him, like there's just one pastor or one leader, right? This isn't like I'm, I'm the little pope of our little branch of Redemption Church. No, we're, we're part of a, I'm part of a team. There's a, there's a plurality of men, uh, we call them elders, who, who labor among us. And these men do labor, 
They work hard. Uh, all of them um, have full-time jobs and do a lot of ministry, um, some that's related to their job, right? Some of them are, are paid elders, and some are non-staff elders, which means that they go work a job like everyone else does and then do their eldering, their ministry on top of that. Uh, these are the guys that are doing, um, you know, meetings for membership interviews. They're doing counseling. They're, they're often getting involved in uh, discipline or corrective type situations. When people have sinned and their lives are falling apart, who do they call? They call these men. And we're called to respect them and to esteem them very highly in love. Um, I'll tell you as well, Matthew and I, since we tend to be up front, we tend to get a lot of esteem and a lot of respect and a lot of, you know, whatever. We also get a lot of blame for stuff that isn't necessarily our fault, but that's, you get the good, you get the bad, whatever. Um, but, but these men uh, among us, these elders, they labor, and a lot of them labor in, not anonymity, I mean, they, they get to know you, but you don't know them or see them or interact with their ministry in the same way that you do with Matthew and I. And so it's important for you to just kind of understand uh, who they are and get, give you a chance to kind of... Um, hear how, how that develops. So I, I want to just invite, I'm looking out here, are any of our elders in this service? Uh, that, if you're an elder in this service, stand up. <laughs> Let's just do it that way. Okay, so Matthew is here and John Cronwald is here. Both of these guys are on staff. That's John. Uh, John leads our Redemption Communities Ministry. Um, he's part-time uh, as an employee of the church and then part-time works for a family business. Um, some of the other guys were here at the earlier service. Um, our elder team at this point consists of um, those two men, Matthew Brazelton, uh, John Cronwald, uh, myself, uh, Tim Campbell, Eloy Garza, uh, Jeffrey Wilcoxon, uh, Charlie Jolly, and I think that's it. That's it, right? <laughs> We've got another guy, Dale Thacker, that's in the process of that. And uh, here's kind of how the process works. I, I don't get, some of you I know you're like, gosh, move on. Who cares about this? Here's the thing. We don't, since we teach mostly through passages of the Bible, we don't always get chances to talk about how this stuff works. And for us, this is really important. And so uh, we, got a we got a moment here to talk about elders and how that works. And I just want to tell you so you know, and then we'll move on to some other stuff that maybe you find more interesting. Um, but here's the process, is if... If, uh, somebody, if a man wants to nominate himself to be an elder in our church, he can do that. If any of you men would want to be an elder, uh, you can nominate yourself to an existing elder and say, I'd, I'd like to be an elder. And we say, great, you're on. No, no, just kidding. There's a process. Um, there's, a, there's an application. There's a whole background check. There's a lot of interviews. And there's a lot of time. And so we would, at that point, decide whether we would want you to engage in that process. There's other times where uh, we as a team will have men that we identify and say, we'd like you to think about um, possibly serving as an elder. And so they begin that elder process. For us, that process, the, just from kind of nominating to actually, um, as a team, the team saying, yeah, we want this guy to be an elder, generally takes around a year or more. Um, you know, we've only been around for three years, so... <laughs> We don't know exactly how long it goes all the time, and sometimes situations are different. But there's a process of them being part of the meetings and part of the team and functioning in the ministry. Um, we have a very important conviction here um, that you don't make someone an elder because they have a lot of money or because they give a lot of money or because they're a great business guy. It's based on character. It's based on uh, quality of life. 
It's based on the existing ministry that they're doing to oversee the church. And so they go through that process. At the end of that process, if the elder team feels good about him, we would bring them before the church and, and say, hey, we want to give you an opportunity to affirm this man. And uh, we would give you four or five weeks to um, say, yes, we agree with this. Uh, we, we love this guy. We see his ministry. Or to say, you know, we have questions about him, and I, don't, and I have an issue, and I want to talk about that. We would give you um, not final approval. The elders have that. But we would give you a voice and the ability to speak into that. Um, and then they would become officially elders. And the way that, that it works for us is we have one-year commitments that are renewable indefinitely. So... Um, every year we kind of re-up and uh, we're in the process right now we'll have breakfast tomorrow as a team and uh, everyone's every guy's filled out some self-assessments and we're kind of going through a process of trying to figure out where am I strong where am I weak am I going to re-up for another year how does this work Uh, what are we going to do there so that's how that process works Um, but these men they, they do they labor they admonish they teach they instruct they they oversee they they're responsible. But, but I think this command to, to respect and to esteem leaders, I think it does go deeper than just the, the senior leaders of the church, the elders or the pastors. I think this also has to do with community leaders. I don't know if you know this, but your community leaders invest a significant amount of time in uh, preparing for, for the evening, preparing for a study or discussion, in shepherding, in organizing mission, and doing all sorts of things. Um, a lot of those leaders, uh, those leaders function as, as couples, and those couples really work hard together, and we should respect and esteem them. Um, there are ministry team leaders who, who uh, organize our teams here, and we should respect and esteem them. Uh, there are student ministry volunteers that pour countless hours into investing in the lives of students. We should respect and esteem them. Uh, we should have an attitude of love there. That's important if we're going to be a great church. And it, it, you can be a growing church where only the guys on stage get some you know, pats on the back. You can be a great church where every time you see somebody doing something that's for the kingdom of God, you encourage them and you esteem them and you honor them. And we want to try to do that. So transformed attitude of love towards authority. Uh, the next thing that we see here, starting verse, the end of verse 13, is a transformed attitude toward each other. Look at uh, chapter 5, verse 13. Look at the end there. It says, be at peace among yourselves. There's another command. Be at peace among yourselves. This whole next section, Paul is going to talk about a life that leads to peace among the community, that the attitude of love that we should have would be such that we would want there to be peace. We would not delight in strife. We would not delight in arguing. We would not delight in gossip. We would not delight in slander. We would not delight in stirring it up. You know people that delight in that stuff? You know the people at your, at your office that delight in that stuff? There's no place for that in the church is what he's saying. We're to love one another. We're to be at peace among yourselves. How do we do that? He says, verse 14, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. This is interesting because Paul gives three different categories of people, the idle, the faint-hearted, the weak, he says, be patient with all of them. And he says to act differently uh, to, to each group of people depending on what they need. 
And what this comes from, again, is an attitude of love. If you've decided to think or to feel in a loving way, then you are looking out for people. You are seeing their needs and you are responding according to their need. You're patient with them. You're caring for them. And we're to do this with one another. We're to do this within our families. We're to do this as a church. First, he says, admonish the idol. Uh, the word idle doesn't mean just sort of the lazy. That's how we tend to think of it, the lazy. Uh, there's a footnote there in my Bible. It could also be translated disorderly or undisciplined. Uh, these are people who are constantly sort of out of control. They're stirring stuff up. Um, they're disruptive. What's the command there? Admonish them. There's a form of instruction going on there, but there's also kind of a, hey, hey, hey knock it off. Stop it. Some of the strongest uh, commands in Scripture as it relates to what we would call church discipline or church restoration comes with people who are, who are uh, unruly, who are disorderly, who are divisive. And there's a whole sort of, if someone sins against you, there's a whole sort of step one, step two, step three, step four process in dealing with that. Not when it comes to division. When it comes to division in the church, Paul says, warn them once, after that I have nothing to do with them. This is serious. God means business. God preserve, wants to preserve the unity in his church. And so we're to admonish the idol. And we'll do that if we love. But I tell you what, it's hard. How many of you just love admonishing people? Some of you do, a little too much. We're going to talk with you about encouraging the faint-hearted. But, but for most of us who struggle with admonishing, I mean, this is, this is a tough thing. And it takes some discernment. And most of all, it takes, it takes love. I remember Matthew and I, when we were uh, leading a discipleship group, um, this was, I don't know, seven, eight years ago. We were leading a, a college group, just volunteering as college group leaders. And we had this one particular guy in the group. And every week he would come with some just huge, amazing sob story of either something that had happened to him or something that he had done or some... And a lot of it was like, I mean, it was the kind of thing where you'd listen to and you'd go, man, we got to do something for him. He's so broken. He's so needy. He's so, we got to help him. You know, and then it would come back again the next week in a different story and a different story and then a different story. And we eventually realized, you know what? He doesn't really want help. He wants attention. And every week he's coming in here and he's sidetracking everything we're doing with some basically look at how bad I sinned story. And, and it took a while for us to discern that. But listen, we loved him too much to let him just keep doing that. Because that wasn't helping him. Got him attention, but it didn't help him fix the problems. And we loved the other guys in the group too much to just let their whole experience be totally disrupted by this individual. And so we finally had to, had to talk with him and say, man... Um, we want to help, and we're here to help, and we've done some things to demonstrate that we love and care about you, but do you really want to change? Because it seems like you just want attention, and, and so we, we had to admonish him. Man, I'd love to tell you that he went, oh, you're right. I'm such an attention seeker. I need to repent and, and, and turn from my pride to Jesus, and I need, I'd love to tell you that. No, he didn't say that. He, he kind of left found someone else that he could get attention from man you're mean you kicked that poor boy out of the 
your group. No, no, we said, here's what help looks like. We're eager to provide it. He didn't want help, he wanted attention. The point there is it's hard. It's hard to do that. And you can only do it if, if you love. Now, there's plenty of other times where I, I, I see situations, I see stuff, and honestly, I just love my comfort too much to want to deal with it. You kind of, well, it'll go away, or it's not a big deal, or you quote, oh, love covers all offenses, and you just kind of make an excuse for it. And so I, I blow this a lot, too. But this is how we're to help each other. Not, not putting, I hope you get this, not putting on a junior Holy Spirit badge, you know, and pointing out all the problems. But so when, when you see someone that just, they're constantly stirring stuff up, like, knock them around a little bit. Say, stop. Knock it off. There's another group of people, the faint-hearted. Look at verse 14. Encourage the faint-hearted. This word faint-hearted means discouraged, or literally could be translated the small of soul. Those who are small of soul, those who are discouraged, those who are faint-hearted. There's a difference between being out of order and disruptive because you just want attention or you just want to claim or you want to be in the mix or in the know or blah, 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 and, and someone who's just discouraged. Life's beat them up. They're down. Their soul feels like it's, it's small, like it's shriveled. They need an encouraging word. What do we do in those cases? Do we admonish them? No, we encourage. We remind them of the promises of God. We remind them that if God is for them, who can be against them? We remind them that what they know about who God is should trump how they feel about their situation. And we should encourage them with scripture and encourage them with our time and encourage them with our presence. We should do that. Again, that comes from love. Love... Uh, is discerning enough and takes enough time and enough care to know the difference between disorderly and faint-hearted. And love seeks to serve. Admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, and then help the weak. Help the weak. Everybody's weak, aren't they? I mean, if you think you're strong, you're probably pretty weak. But specifically here, what he's talking about is helping those who are in need, those who have needs, specifically probably physical needs. He's saying, listen, there, there's some people that they're, they're, they're just causing a bunch of trouble. You've got to deal with them. Deal with them firmly. There's other people, man, life's just beating them up. Encourage them. There's other people who, man, they're trying hard. They're working hard. They just have needs. Help them. That's the word. Help. Help them. Be patient with them all. See what people need and provide it. That takes love. The opposite of love, as we always say, is not hatred, it's selfishness. And if we're too selfish to really look to what people need and, and do something about them, if we're too wrapped up in our own comfort, then we won't love. I want to tell you, one of the ways that we do this, just so, just so you know this, it's hard to always communicate all the different things that happen in the church, um, but part of, the, the, part of your regular giving uh, when, you, when you give on a regular basis, part of that goes towards a benevolence fund that is specifically to help those in need. Uh, we also have another benevolence fund that you can just give to kind of on its own. But, but just so you know, as, as a regular part of your giving, as a regular part of your ministry, um, we have some ways to do this and to help this. Um, and, and that's a good thing, and, our, and we're glad that corporately as a church that we can, we can provide some of that. But this also means personally, I'm convicted when I read the book of Acts. And you read that they, they actually sold some stuff 
to give to people in need. I only give like if I think I have some left. It's a different kind of thing. But this is love. And where does that love come from? Again, it comes from verse 10, Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we're awake or asleep, we might live with him. We're to love those above us. We're to love those alongside us. We're to love those who are struggling, who are weak, who in a sense could be considered under us. And most of all, we're to love the Lord. We're to be fully committed to him. We believe here that all of life is all for Jesus. And that means we love him with everything. And uh, Paul makes that uh, clear in verses 16 through 18. He says, rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything, or give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. He's saying, listen, you're living in a world that's tough. It's hurtful. It's broken. And in the midst of that, this is, this is God's world. He's created it. He's sovereign over it. He's allowed there to be this kind of pain and this kind of sin and this kind of brokenness. In the midst of it, rejoice. Well, of course, Paul. I mean, when things go good, yeah. yeah. No, no, no. Rejoice always, he says. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. And he caps it off. For this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Gosh, I want to know God's will. What's God's will? It's interesting. 1 Thessalonians told us a couple times what God's will is. If you go back to chapter 4, verse 3, it says this. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, your holiness, your becoming more and more committed to the interests of God. That's his will for you. And in chapter 5.18, it says that rejoicing always, praying without ceasing, giving thanks and everything, that's God's will for you. What does God want you to do? God wants you to live a life that's fully oriented around him. God is calling us that all of our life would be all for Jesus. That's what he's calling us to. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. That, that doesn't mean... That doesn't, it obviously cannot mean spend every moment you're alive uttering prayers to God. Because as soon as you go to sleep, disobedient. I mean, you, if, if you're talking right now out loud to God, it'd be hard to hear what we're talking about in his word, wouldn't it, right? But, but hopefully you're listening even right now with an attitude of prayer with a sense of dependence on him, with a sense of need of him, with a sense of not my will but yours be done. This is what he's saying. Have that attitude all the time. And then give thanks in all circumstances. Is there a harder command in the Bible than that one? I mean, he doesn't say give thanks in most circumstances, give thanks in some circumstances, give thanks in the really great circumstance. Give thanks in all circumstances. It doesn't mean we're thankful for everything, but it does mean that in everything we have reason to be thankful. That reason is that the wrath of God is removed from us. We have salvation through Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we're awake or asleep, we would live with him. Because in every circumstance, Jesus is with us. He said to his disciples, as he called them on the Great Commission, he said, go into all the world, make disciples of all nations, baptize them, teach them. And then he finished and he said, and behold, I am with you always 
to the end of the age. Here we are celebrating Christmas, the birth of Jesus, Emmanuel. Do you know what Emmanuel means? God with us. If God is with you and if God is for you, then nothing can separate you from his love. Go, go if you will, for a moment. I, I'm, I'm going off. Uh, I didn't really have much of a script today, but go to Romans 8. I don't know what page it's on. If one of you has the Black Bible and can shout it out, we'll do that. Um, but Romans chapter 8. if you have one of the black hardcover Bibles. Uh, Look at Romans 8.35. He says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And you go, Yeah, I think all those things would make me wonder if God loved me. I mean, look at it. I mean, he doesn't say, what shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall flowers or pancakes or breakfast in bed or long walks on the beach? I mean, if if that's all it was, you'd go, well, yeah, I mean, of course God loves me. He says, what's going to separate you from God's love? And then he lists out a bunch of stuff that would. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. And it gets worse. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. That's God's will. He is with you. And he says this in verse 19. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. But test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Uh, this is a, a, a long and, and sort of complicated discussion, potentially. I think the context of this passage makes it pretty clear. Um, but there's some discussion among commentators and theologians about what prophecy is. Is prophecy that Paul refers to here in verse 20 the same as Old Testament prophecy, different, blah, blah, blah. What does it mean? Um, we're going to put a post on the Redemption AZ website that goes in depth on these particular verses if you want to study that. But here's, here's just an overview of this. Um, my understanding of this is that prophecy is specifically when the Spirit of God brings something to, to the person, to a follower of Jesus, to encourage someone else. Some people would call it prophecy. Some people would say, you know, you were just, the, the Lord put you on my mind. Whatever you call it, I think that's what it is. And he's saying, don't, don't quench the Spirit. Don't despise prophecies. When someone comes to you and says, you know what, you're on my heart, you're on my mind, I, 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 I just sense that um, I needed to tell you something. Don't inherently despise that. But he says, verse 21, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Something, if it, if it accords with Scripture, if it makes sense, if it lines up, if it seems wise, good, hold fast to that. If it doesn't, eh, then discard it. 
but abstain from every form of evil. What he's saying is, if you're rejoicing always, you're praying without ceasing, you're giving thanks in all circumstances, you're living at peace with one another, you're admonishing when needed, you're helping when needed, you're encouraging when needed, the Spirit of God is going to be in your midst, and he's going to provide exactly what you need. And, and so be, be, have open ears to, the, to what other people will be encouraging you with. Test it in light of Scripture, for sure. But know that God's working in and among his people. And God is the one at work to do all this, to give us this attitude of love. That's why he says in verse 23, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. There it is again, the coming of the Lord. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. I don't know if there's a better five words in the Bible than that. He will surely do it. How do you know? Because he removed the wrath that God had against your sin by taking it to the cross. He died so that whether you're asleep or awake, you'd be with him. And he's going to finish what he started. He who calls you is faithful. God's will for you that you would be sanctified and, and made completely devoted to his interest. He's doing that. He's working that in us. There's some other commands here. Uh, verse 25, brothers, pray for us. Verse 26, greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. We're going to start applying that today. Just kidding. <laughs> it, it, it's his way of, it, it, this is a you know, cultural thing. Get, make sure you give everybody a fist bump, you know. <laughs> High fives, hugs, whatever that would be. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. And then... Here's what we need most of all, verse 28. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. If the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is with us, it will reshape our attitude. It will give us the ability to love leaders when they're hard to follow, people when they're difficult, people when they're needy. It'll give us love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and for your grace, we thank you that you who call us are faithful. God, that you will do what you've begun. That you will sanctify us completely and make us uh, committed to your interests at the coming of our Lord Jesus. God, we pray he would come soon. How wonderful it would be if we didn't get to celebrate Christmas this year. Because we were celebrating the second coming instead. Lord, help us to anticipate, help us to hope, help us to love. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, uh, you look at that list of 17 or 19 commands, how'd you do? It's, uh, it's a tall order. It can be difficult. So we're going to celebrate communion right now, and everyone who followed that perfectly this last